This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the award-winning historian Andrew Del Banco about his book, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves in the Struggle for America's Soul, From the Revolution to the Civil War. You tell a compelling story, Andrew, and you bring to it the emotional force of Shakespearean tragedy. The unfolding of events between the ratification of the Constitution and the firing on Fort Sumter, you ascribe to the exposure of the idea of the United States as a lie. Maybe you can begin with the less than immaculate conception of that lie. Well, I think I say early on in the book that the great Abraham Lincoln, and he was great, uh, asserted that our nation was conceived in liberty. And there's in, some, in the Gettysburg Address. Right. And there's some truth to that, but I think it's actually more accurate and less exalted to say that it was conceived in compromise. By what I mean by that is that essentially two nations sent their representatives to Philadelphia in 1787. Of course, there were many interlinkages and overlaps between the two, but the reality is that in one of those nations, the institution of human bondage, slavery, was the bedrock of the culture in every respect, the bedrock of the economy uh, uh, and of all human relationships. And the slave population, the enslaved uh, African-American population was very significant. In the other country, to the north, it was quite clear that slavery was en route to extinction through judicial action, legislative action, doesn't mean that people, white people in the North were necessarily more enlightened in their racial attitudes, but it does mean that slavery hadn't taken root in the same way as it had in the South. And so uh, the, these two nations came together and tried to make one out of two. And a number of compromises and accommodations had to be made. That's the story of the making of the Constitution. The one that's really the starting point of the story that I try to tell in this book is that they faced a sort of, you might say, technical legal problem, which also was a profound human problem. And that was, what would be the status of a human being who was regarded as property in one state of this new proposed union who took him or herself to another state where the concept of human property didn't exist in law. What would the status of such a person be? Uh, Either if that person fled from slavery or was taken by another person who claimed to own him or her, what would the status of that person be? And they understood from the beginning that this was a question that they had to deal with, so they put into the Constitution what has come to be known as the Fugitive Slave Clause, although in fact it pertained also to uh, fugitives from justice, that is, somebody who committed a crime in one state who sought to escape justice by going to another state. 
but an indentured servants too, somebody who might owe a number of years of servitude but decided to leave before the contract was over. But really at the heart of this clause, which was Article 4, Section 2, Clause 3, was the question of what to do with people who had committed the crime, as they conceived it at the time, of stealing themselves. That's one of the... It's a runaway a, slave was stealing himself. Right. And, and, and Because he was somebody else's property. Right. And that's one of those moments when I was reading for the book, thinking about the issues, writing the book, that I realized now there's a, there's a conception that we need to wrap our minds around that human beings could be charged with the crime of stealing themselves because they were regarded in the law as property. And uh, it was no different, to run away with yourself was no different from stealing a bag of cash or a horse or farm implements from the perspective of the person who thought you were owned by him. So in that, in that clause of the Constitution, and I'll read some of the language, uh, the founders wrote, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. And if I may, I would I would pause for a moment. I want to say some things about that language. But first thing I want to say that I began to realize when I started to talk to people about the book as it was being written is a great many very well-educated, sophisticated Americans are surprised to learn that the U.S. Constitution contains this clause. And I think it's a surprise that... Um, is worth springing on people. I agree. <laughs> because it speaks to the fact that the institution of slavery was so basic to the structure of the nation at the time of the founding that they had to deal with this particular aspect of the problem. It was also understood in large parts of the world as a fact of human nature, slavery. I mean, the founders owned slaves. Right, right. We, you know, I mean, writing about the past is a tricky business, we don't want to relinquish the the right to make judgments, moral judgments, on people who lived before us. But I think we have an obligation to try to think ourselves back into a world that we've never been to before. Right. And in that world of the 18th century, the institution of slavery was regarded by a great many people as perfectly normal, part of the natural order of things. And it was actually true that... It was hard to identify a human society where the institution of slavery didn't exist. So uh, slavery was there. It was real. It was basic uh, to the to the formation of the of the republic. But what I wanted to say about the language of that clause, if you if you listen to it, read it for yourself, which is a good thing for all Americans to do, you'll notice that it's cast in the passive mood. That is, such persons shall be delivered up, shall be delivered up. Now, as a teacher, if I get a paper from a student with a formulation like that, 
I should take out my blue pencil and write on it and say, well, now, you know what, you're, you're evading something here. Who's, who's doing the delivering up? By whom will this fugitive from justice or criminal who is this stealing This stray himself, piece of property. Yeah. By, who's going to do I mean, it's going to be the local police department is going to chase him down in Watertown, Massachusetts and take him back to Virginia or maybe the state government in Connecticut will do it or the federal government. And you quickly realize that it's very unlikely that any of those entities could have done it. The federal government barely existed, didn't have any enforcement authority. So they, they were the language was deliberately evasive. It was really a way of kicking the can down the road on an issue that they had to formally resolve in order for Southerners to sign on to the Constitution. But most people understood that uh, this clause was unenforceable. And that turns out to be where the story really starts, is as they begin to discover that uh, it wasn't so easy to return human beings fleeing to freedom to return them to a state of slavery. We also have Lincoln uh, saying, I think in the 1850s, we could not get our Constitution unless we permitted slavery to persist in those parts of the notion where it was already entrenched. This, too, requires an act of historical imagination. I mean, as I said earlier, slavery was so fundamental to the life of the slaveholding states that to propose that a condition of entering the Union was to give up your it wouldn't human have property, it wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't right. have happened. I mean, there's, you know, there's one historian who puts it nicely, says, we don't know if Southerners would have refused to join in, refused to sign on to the Constitution if they hadn't gotten this fugitive slave clause, but we do know that Northerners were not willing to call their bluff. Right. So... Lincoln's point is we got the nation and from the beginning it had this, to call it a flaw is to put it a bit uh, too mildly. My my friend Ta-Nehisi Coates puts it pretty nicely. He says we've come to understand that slavery was not a bump in the road. Slavery was the road. Yeah. And and, and I should say, and that, I mean I said earlier there were two nations and I think I could defend that statement, but of course, Northerners, especially as slavery grew and the and the cotton crop became such an important commodity in the world economy, Northern states were up to their eyeballs in in the financial nexus of slavery. I mean, the the Wall Street banks and the State Street banks in the mid nineteenth century were financing the plantations, the textile mills that that brought New England into the Industrial Revolution in the 1820s and 30s were spinning slave-grown cotton into cloth. Uh, So King Cotton in the 19th century is the equivalent of, in America, of what oil was to the Arabs in the the 20th century. It was the the major source of our foreign exchange. That's right. It it was the, the money with which we funded uh, the improvements throughout the entire country That's and the right. way west right. and so on. That's right. But in the first, say, two or th- two decades of the 19th century, the two nations lived together 
more or less peacefully, right? I mean, the the sight of, of uh, white Southern slave owners in fancy hotels in New York with their retinue of slaves is, is not un, uncommon. Right. And the, uh, so the, the troubling moral problems of, of this uh, compromise grow. Right. Your comments lead toward a question which is why and how did America evolve to a point where this peaceful coexistence between the slaveholding portion and yeah. the free portion was no longer possible. And that is a very... That's the driving force of your book. Well, it's a, it's a very deep question to which I don't think I or, frankly, any historian has a fully adequate answer. There are so many reasons that slavery became less and less tolerable to more and more Americans, including reasons that surprise some people when they're cited. Um, One reason for white anti-slavery sentiment was that whites didn't want more black people, right? right? In other words, to be anti-slavery was in some contexts the same thing as being anti-black. I'm not saying that there weren't anti-slavery folks and abolitionists who had deep moral convictions about the horror of slavery, but they were also in a political alliance with people who had other reasons to be against slavery, or slavery could be, you know, the competition that unpaid labor uh, posed to uh, wage laborers made uh, some people very uh, antagonistic to slavery who frankly didn't give a damn about the rights and privileges of black people. I mean, people in the North, they wanted the slaves to be free, but they just didn't want them in their own neighborhood. That's right. That's right. But so so the the story that I try to tell in this book is one, I think, very important strand of the larger story of the rise of the abolitionist movement and the coming of the Civil War. And that is that this clause in the Constitution, which became a, a, a critical article of understanding between North and South, became less and less enforceable. As time went by, why? Because the the border between North and South became longer and more porous as the nation expanded westward. This was particularly pronounced in the wake of the Mexican War, but even beforehand. So, I mean, we talk today about, uh, you know, policing the border or securing the border. There was no way to secure the border between Maryland or Virginia and Pennsylvania or later between Kentucky and Ohio. And although the numbers don't really tell the tale, the persistent movement of people toward freedom, which is an inevitable, unquenchable human appetite, Mr. Lincoln understood that very well when when confronted with the argument, and, and this is another thing we have to wrap our minds around, that, that white slave owners made the argument that slavery was not only good for slave owners, it was good for slaves. To which Lincoln responded, that's a very peculiar kind of goodness that no man has ever wished for for himself. Also, that, and, and you do this very well in the book, you explain that the that notion of happy slaves smiling on a happy plantation right. is far from the truth. I mean, the the, the Deep South, the slaves were essentially in a brutal concentration camp, and escape was almost impossible. That's Explain correct. some of that. That's correct. 
and you find uh, Daniel Webster, in fact, in 1850, makes just that point. He says that the, you know, we're arguing here over this law. The fact of the matter is for the slaves in the plantation south, the chance of escape is virtually zero under any circumstances. And that was appallingly uh, accurate. It was really the upper south. It was... uh, Kentucky, Maryland, Virginia, where slave owners were very concerned about the insecurity of their slave property. And um, they were the leading proponents of, of the constitutional clause and later on uh, congressional efforts to put teeth into that toothless clause of, of the Constitution. So in any case, the, the story that I try to tell is of rising tension generated by this problem of the human appetite for freedom. Uh, And by the 1830s or so, things were really getting very difficult from the point of view of anybody who wanted to hold the country together. Uh, uh, Southerners were accusing Northerners of enticing their human property to come north uh, with promises of a better life, which may or may not have been false promises. And Northerners were accusing Southern, when I say Northern and Southern, I mean Southern and Northern whites, were accusing Southerners of sending kidnappers, bounty hunters, North to steal not only uh, accused, and I put that word in quotation marks, fugitives, but any able-bodied man or woman that you found on the street or working in the fields that you thought, hey, I get this person and take her back to uh, my home state and she'll fetch a pretty price in, in, in the market. The People are aware, for instance, of this famous story, which publishes a book recently, a movie, 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup. Now, that's the story of a free black man in New York State who is kidnapped by two guys who lure him to Washington, and they put him up for sale at a slave at a slave auction and he ends up working at a plantation in the deep south so this was a reality the risk yeah, the yeah. risk to people was a reality so so the so the northern states began to pass laws that made it more difficult for southerners to recover their quote unquote stolen human property it made it expensive it put put up legal obstacles and Southerners reacted by saying these are unconstitutional, these laws, because it says right there in the Constitution we've got the right to recover our property. The right to private property, after all, is a cornerstone of the American Republic. Uh, so this this tension got, got worse and worse, and by the 1830s and 1840s you begin to have an organized anti-slavery movement and it's a biracial movement, white people and black people working together. And it was quickly recognized that the most effective spokespersons for the anti-slavery movement were people who could actually speak from their personal experience about what it's like to have been enslaved. Yeah, so you begin to get in the 1840s, 1830s, slave narratives. Right. T- told by people like Frederick Douglass. Right, which which tended to begin as public uh, orations, speeches. Um, white abolitionists loved having uh, a former slave, a runaway slave, who was willing to take the risk of exposing him or herself to public notice and to tell the story of what it had been 
what it had been like. And, and Frederick Douglass is the most famous, but there were many. There was a gentleman named William Wells Brown, a very brilliant writer, actually, who, in in speaking to uh, an anti-slavery meeting in New England, said something that really haunted me as a kind of chastisement for me as I was trying to write this book. Slavery, he said, cannot be represented. It can never be represented. He knew that the audience had an appetite to hear his horror stories, and he said, I would whisper to you of slavery, which is, I think, a an implicit rebuke to anyone who thinks that we can really grasp what it meant to be a human being with no rights over one's own body or or soul. But people like Brown and, and Douglas and many others became celebrities of a sort. Right, and, and, and began to move public opinion. Yes. And you also point out that some of the more famous uh, established American writers of the period, Hawthorne, yes. Emerson, uh, even Whitman in his early youth, are, are not noticing. Right. This is, you know... We, we often tend to think that someone who's very gifted in one way, a gifted poet or a gifted no, artist, musician, novelist, is going to have large enough human sympathies to be on the right side of every yeah. moral issue. And if, yeah. you, if you study literary history, you pretty quickly find out that's not true. I mean, Nathaniel Hawthorne was a great writer. But his view of slavery was something not too far from indifference. Uh, Whitman had a, a great imagination for freedom, but uh, it, he was pretty slow in coming around to a passionate view of the rights of enslaved people. Melville gets it, though, right? Well, I think Melville is the Melville is the one who sees most deeply, from my point of view, into just about everything. And he, I mean, he too wrote about slavery relatively obliquely. It's there in Moby Dick in in a a number of ways. Yes. Uh, But he wrote this extraordinary short novel called Benito Sereno in the mid-1850s, which is one of the most coruscating, devastating accounts of race relations that you ever want to read. And um, and I think he did have as deep an understanding as a white person could achieve of what it might actually mean to live in the world as a black person regarded as property. Uh, so yes, I think Melville was an exception. Then there was, of course, the most famous white writer who confronted the issue was Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yes, but that's yeah. later. She comes 18... Well, uh, not later than, than no. Melville's Benito Sereno. She comes 1851. Uh, okay. She, she, and she was writing directly in response to a uh, sort of linchpin moment of my narrative, the passage in 1850 of this new fugitive slave law. So just to quickly recapitulate that... Yeah, l- no, let's go back to that. Let's go back yeah. to the... Yeah, so in the in the wake of the, in the wake of the Mexican War, it was time for another compromise. Otherwise, the Union looked like it was going to come to pieces. 
so they made a number of compromises. In the District of Columbia, for example, they made the slave trade, the commercial slave trade, illegal. Okay. Another thing that most Americans find hard to grasp is that until then, when U.S. representatives and senators went to the Capitol, they could hear the howls and screams of slaves in their pens waiting to be sold south. So in 1850, the Congress agreed, we're not going to do that anymore. Now, I describe it in my book as a kind of cosmetic uh, agreement because you could perfectly well continue buying and selling slaves right across the river in Alexandria, Virginia. Slavery itself remained legal in Washington, D.C. until practically the middle of the Civil War. So that was a compromise. No more slave trade, but slavery, okay. But the South felt, or at least a lot of Southern politicians felt, that unless the Congress got serious about enforcing the Fugitive Slave Clause, uh, there would be no future to this union that had been a dicey business all along. So they passed this new law, which was a merciless and morally indefensible law. It made it a federal crime for any American citizen to aid or abet a fugitive from slavery. It denied that fugitive right to a jury trial. It denied the right to testify in one's own defense. Uh, It denied the most basic right in the Anglo-American legal tradition, the right of habeas corpus, the right to contest in open court the legality of one's own detention. And it didn't quite create, but it expanded a category called federal commissioners, justices of the peace, local sheriffs, who were authorized to seize somebody upon petition by someone who claimed that they owned them and uh, have a summary hearing without anything resembling due process and sending that person back to slavery. So that law was passed in 1850 with the intention of holding the nation together. And But that's the same 1850 compromise is the one that is referring to the territory right. acquired in the Mexican law. Correct. California has been allowed into the nation as a free state in 1850, and then the question comes, what parts of this new territory are going to be slave and which parts are going to be free? Right, because the delicate balance of every state then as now had two senators, right? So in order for this union to function, the equilibrium between slave states and free states had to be maintained, and the Compromise of 1850 was an effort to maintain that. But the but the linchpin at the center of this compromise, from the point of view of many Southern slave owners, was this fugitive slave law. And, you know, I said a moment ago it was intended to hold the nation together. Now, I had a, a late distinguished colleague uh, at Columbia where I teach who coined the phrase the law of unintended consequences. If there was ever a law of unintended consequences, it was the fugitive slave law of 1850, which didn't, in fact hold the nation together, but accelerated the process by which the nation came apart. And that's an important part of the story I try to tell. Why? 
because once that law was on the books and once local authorities in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Wisconsin, Ohio were under a federal mandate to participate in the rendition of fugitives from slavery, it became a lot more difficult for citizens of the North to say to themselves, you know what, slavery is somebody else's problem. Slavery is something that exists somewhere else. If all of a sudden you saw your neighbor who had been in, in, in your town for months or even years dragged down the street by a mob that was not a vigilante mob but a legally authorized mob and taken to the pier and put on a boat and sent back to an angry slave master it was it was a lot harder to say well that 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 has nothing to do with me so as frederick douglas among others said and this is uh, you know the story is full of grisly paradoxes the fugitive slave law was a great gift to the anti-slavery movement. Douglas says that. Douglas huh? says that. And and the way I, you know, we all think about the past in terms of our own experience. It, it, he meant something like what Dr. King understood, that the specter of children being attacked by police dogs or young men and women being hosed with fire hoses because they wanted to eat a hamburger at a lunch counter in Birmingham or Montgomery in the 1950s, that uh, their personal suffering was going to be beneficial to the the larger movement. And that's what Douglas meant, and I think it turned out that he was right. The, The fugitive slave law became a great rallying cry uh, for the anti-slavery movement, and um, uh, Harry but it, P- and also, yeah. but it it's terrible because it divides people in themselves. Well, exact, I mean, exactly, and I appreciate your saying that because you know, someone this is an immodest thing to say, but when I was first thinking about writing this book, someone said to me, um, you know that that actually has a chance to be a good book because it's going to be about people in conflict with themselves. Yeah. And that turned out for me to be uh, quite true. Uh, You know, most black people, although there were some black people in the North who who felt inner conflict over how to respond to the fugitive slave law as well, um, uh, free black people in the North were sometimes e- exploited by white uh, slave owners to um, turn in uh, fugitives who had sought safe harbor in a black community, say, in, in uh, Boston or Newport or elsewhere. But what what this comment really pertains to is white political leaders and intellectuals and others of distinction who may have personally found slavery repugnant, but who were convinced that without this 1850 compromise and this odious law at its center, the nation would collapse. 
And one such person, I mean, the most conspicuous such person was Abraham Lincoln himself. Who says? Who says? I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and sent back to their stripes, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. Right. He says that in 1855 in a letter to a friend, and he is often uh, called to account for saying such a thing. And he and he was uh, excoriated by people in what we would describe as the left wing of the of of the anti-slavery movement uh, in the 1850s. But that's the split between the duty to the law, the duty to the law, and the duty to the to, you know to feeling and conscience. Right. Like, like, and that's a that's right. is split. It is. It is a. What this book is, I mean, this book is about some of the things we've been talking about. It tells a specific story and a set in a specific time and place. But I, I, I like to think that more largely it's a book about this timeless human problem of what to do in the face of an unjust law. Because if you, if you believe that the law is what hold society together and that change progressive change must come in due course through the revision of the law then you probably have to accept it if you believe that the legal institutions are so far beyond anything uh, remotely acceptable on moral grounds, then you become a revolutionary and you pull the whole structure down. And some people made that choice in the 1850s. Lincoln was not one of them. I don't think that meant that his hatred of slavery was insincere. No. Uh, and there were good reasons to believe. I mean, that's this another, if I can offer another perhaps self-evident comment, I think the hardest thing in writing about the past is to really realize that no one knew what was going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen, and therefore we don't know if the choices we make are wise or foolish. Now, in 1850, some serious people, many of them who loathed, detested slavery, believed that without this compromise, the nation would split apart and it was perfectly possible that the South would go its own way, become an expansive slave empire, expand into the Caribbean, return for more plunder to Mexico, uh, and that allowing the Union to split apart would serve the slave interests more than undermine the slave interest. Who knows if they were right or wrong because it didn't happen in 1850. But that is, that was the yeah. way some people thought yeah. and, and I think Lincoln was probably one of them. All right, let's move on through the 1850s because the rancor uh, gets worse and worse. I mean, there's the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854 and there's the Dred Scott decision in 1857. Right. It, make, make reference to those two events. Well, again, you know, every every historian has their favorite uh, reference point as to what was the key, what what was the fuse that that 
uh, well, what was the spark that lit the fuse that led to civil war? And I'm sort of trying to make the case for the fugitive slave law of 1850, but you could make a at least equally strong case for the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, which was another effort at compromise. It was Stephen Douglas's idea that this vast territory, uh, rather than stick with the uh, rule imposed by the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which would have outlawed slavery uh, north of a certain latitude line, we'd let the local population decide for themselves. He called it popular sovereignty. And it's it sort of sounded good to a lot of people. I mean, you know, we're a democracy. We let people decide for themselves. Uh, the Republican Party, which really came into existence in response to that um, pr- proposition, argued, uh, no, this is this is the repeal of the of the compromise that contained slavery, that restrained slavery from expanding into territory for free people, for free white people. And if we go in this direction, slavery could spread anywhere, any local community that decides, yeah, they'd like to bring their enslaved people into the neighborhood would have the right to do so. And even the freedom of white people would be endangered. Lincoln said more than once that you could wake up tomorrow and find that Illinois has become a slave state. Uh, So and then, of course, there were practical issues. I mean, who got to vote? When would there when would you vote? So what happened in Kansas, Nebraska, is you had pro-slavery forces in from Missouri, and you had anti-slavery forces coming in from the Northeast, and they got into pitched battles with each other in a kind of rehearsal for the Civil uh, Civil War. It took a few years for that to happen, but it happened. And in 1857, a man named Dred Scott took his lawsuit for freedom all the way to the Supreme Court. It's a complicated case. His basic claim was that he had uh he was entitled to his freedom because his owner had taken him into free territory for an extended period of time and therefore he could no longer be considered a slave and um the court could have ruled narrowly on the details of the of the of the of the claim but instead the chief justice Roger Tawney from Maryland decided to take the opportunity to make some big declarative statements, including the one that black people had no rights, including the right to sue in federal court. Right. Uh, Had no rights to citizenship or whatever. Right. No rights in a notorious phrase that the white man was bound to respect. Uh, And that, that court decision was received by Lincoln and others as a, a devastating blow because it it again it suggested that there were no limits to where slave owners could take their slave slave property uh so by the late 1850s um things were looking pretty grim and then one more event that is often cited as the uh, as the starting the firestorm was of course the uh expedition led by John Brown uh, uh across the Potomac uh, in 1859 to Harper's Ferry, uh, where he led a small band of followers uh, in an effort to assemble weapons from a federal arsenal and uh, seems to have believed that he could hand those weapons out to the slaves in the neighborhood and he would initiate a widespread slave uprising throughout the South. And his 
efforts came to a quick end. He was arrested under the leadership of a guy named Robert E. Lee, who was a colonel at the time, hanged in short order, and became a symbol of fanaticism in the South and a hero to anti-slavery believers in the North and, in a way, the flashpoint that, um, that led to civil war. Melville called him the portent of the war. But it, look over the arc of your book, which is a, a really magnificent book, and, and I should say to the listeners that, that this month it's coming out in, in paperback. It was first published in 2018, but starting this this month it, it will be in a paperback. But the... the uh, Essentially, it's the story of people, both North and South, that over a period of 73 years, Constitution to Civil War, cannot live with a lie. At the end of the day, enough people couldn't live with it that we went to war against ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, um, there's a phrase attributed to Mark Twain he probably never said, but might have liked it. If, if I've used he, it often if it's the one I think you're going to quote. History doesn't repeat itself when it rhymes. Right. Yeah. So when I was telling this story that you've uh, helpfully uh guided me toward retelling this conversation, I did feel a lot of the time that I was listening to rhymes. For instance, I learned, and I learned a lot by reading and writing for this book, um, I learned that a black man who was running or even walking fast in antebellum America was more often than not assumed to be a criminal. There's a lot of places in this country where that's still true. Well, there are a lot of other overtones in your book. Um, talk about memory rhyming. I mean, we still have some of that rhyme uh, with us. We do, and I could I could list a few more rhymes with your indulgence. By all means, go ahead and um, do so. Uh, sanctuary cities. Yeah. I mean, they didn't use the phrase, but Boston, uh, Syracuse, Rochester, essentially said um, to the federal government, uh, you leave us alone. You're, you're not coming here to seize people who were, in a certain sense, the undocumented immigrants of their time. These were people without legal papers entitling them to live as free persons where they were living. So sanctuary cities and another... But you also have the same problem in the sanctuary cities that you point out about the uh, blacks uh, being uh, abstractly free, but, but not in my neighborhood. I mean, in other words, you don't see say, San Francisco. You, 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 you don't see a lot of uh, immigrants in Pacific Heights. Right. 
Yeah, no, that's another thing that came home to me in working on this book. It was no picnic to be a black person in the North. No. Whether you had once been a slave or not. I mean, they were hung and, and, yeah. during the, uh, right. the, you know, the draft riots. Right. Well, New York was a f- southern friendly city. And uh, uh, black people had to run for their lives through the streets of Manhattan uh, at the time that Lincoln instituted the, the, the military draft. You know, I think, and this may be just a, an exposure of my own naivete, but I don't mind confessing it. Writing this book helped me to understand something that maybe I knew intellectually, but I didn't know it viscerally. American history is a totally different story for black people than it is for white people. And we have not yet, we're, we're, we're closer to understanding that than we were, say, 50 or even 30 years ago. But we still have a long, a long way to go. Um, I quote one fugitive from slavery as early as the 1820s who says, and I don't have the exact words in front of me, that if I could, if I could uh, take my skin, which was brutalized by whip scars, I would wrap, I would use it as part, I would leave it after my death as a parchment to wrap that that document of liberty, that charter of liberty, the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. Constitution was no charter of liberty for no, black people. No, it was not. It was absolutely not. I have to tell you, this is a wonderful book, Andrew, and I thank you for speaking with us today. The uh, There are a lot of overtones in it, and, and I would invite the listener to read it, not only to learn about America in the first half of the 19th century, but also to learn about America today. Thank you very much, Louis. That means a lot to me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.